If you're visiting with us today, you come at a time as we wrap up, or almost wrap up, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Once we finish the confession next week, Pastor Corey and I have a few topical messages that we think would be important for us to preach to the church right now. Then we also have a couple of guest speakers coming, Pastor John Speed and uh, Pastor James Renahan coming in February. And so, welcome if you're visiting. Today we come to chapter 31 in the Confession, the state of humanity after death and the resurrection of the dead. So this is another example, at least for me, of why Pastor Corey and I wanted to preach the Confession. I can't think of a time in the history of the church where we've actually had a specific message on the intermediate state and the resurrection. Um, we, um, we've talked about those things at times, but never a concentrated message. So I think what you've seen, if you followed along with us during the series, is we've had a number of those things as we've gone through that, that I hope the result is that we have a, a more thorough and wide depth of understanding of doctrine and theology as we leave this series than when we entered this series. So we spent the last five messages looking at ecclesiology, which is a big word that just means the doctrine of the church. So we've talked about the Lord's Supper, we've talked about baptism, those types of things over the last five or so messages. And today we come to the first of two messages dealing with eschatology, meaning the study of the last things. So really, you'll see that these two chapters really could be almost be combined into one. And so Pastor Corey is going to preach next week, and it's really just going to be kind of a continuation of what you're going to hear today. So in our day, probably most of you recognize this, and we're about to start a series on eschatology. A lot of people are talking about the last things, right? But but generally speaking, when we come to talk about that, when we're having those sorts of interactions online, it has to do with where we differ, right? It's, oh, what's going to happen you know, before Christ comes? What's going to be happened after? What's the timing of those things? We, there's certain truths that Orthodox believers kind of all agree on, and, and those are things that we don't actually mention very much. And so, when those are the types of things that we're going to be looking at this week, and then when we come to chapter 32 next week on the last judgment. So I think one of the results of that, for that reason, we don't talk so much about death and what's going to happen for us individually, at least as far as what Scripture says about that. And then to combine with that, we actually live in a culture where death has been largely sanitized. If we think back over the last hundred or so years, there's been many, many advances in medicine that have granted greater health, longer life for God's people and through common grace to all of mankind, right? And so, hey, to to pick up on what Brother Corey is going to be preaching, that seems kind of optimistic of what's going to happen, but um, as a side here. So, yeah, we've seen all these things, right, where death is not something that we're faced with. It's not something that readily um, confronts us as in times past. Here's some, some statistics just for some comparison. In 1860, the life expectancy in the United States was only 39 years. So that's, that wasn't because of the Civil War. This is pre-Civil War. So 39 years. So now it's actually more than twice that. So that, that's a dramatic change that I think that 
we can't even really wrap our minds around what that would be like for the average person to not even make it to the age of 40. And then in 1800, the child mortality rate for children under five was actually 463 deaths per thousand. So if you think about that, nearly half of the kids born didn't make it till the age of five. If, if we think about just in our congregation, think about the impact upon us if that were to happen. I mean, think about all the children sitting here in this room that wouldn't be here. Because right now that number has now dropped to seven. So, so that's a remarkable change in just the last couple of hundred years. So it's really impacted, you know, not forcing us to, to really face the reality of death. Interestingly, in the 1800s, what we call the living room was actually called the death room. And so, I mean, it's where, I mean, it was the parlor where, I mean, literally they would have, you know, the, the dead bodies of, of relatives and things, you know, there on display. And then with the improvement of, you know, the condition of how the dead were treated and all these medical things, what happened was the Ladies' Home Journal in 1910 suggested that this room was no longer a room of death, so it should be called the living room. And so, that, so that's how we get that name, right? It's, it's kind of weird to look back in history to see how those sorts of things happen, right? But, but that doesn't even occur to us that, that, hey, there used to be this room in the house that, w- that was so focused upon death that it would be referred to in that way. And so for us, we've, we've really, most of us, managed to push death off into the corner as this thing that we don't really ever have to confront and think about. And so, but when I speak of that, Probably everyone in this room, as you, start, as you start here to death and think about it, you all recognize, man, that's a real thing, and that's coming one day for me, right? We can try to push it off, but, but something deep down in us knows, okay, that, that, that's coming for us. We, we can do our best to, to put that thought out of our mind, but, it, but it's going to be a reality for all of us. So if you see here today, outside of Christ, that reality ought to absolutely terrify you. And we're going to hear more about the details of Scripture of why that is. And then for those of us in Christ, is death still an enemy for us? Yes, absolutely, but it's an enemy that's been conquered by our Lord. And so we can approach death with a peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of this fallen world. And so today we're going to look at the biblical data, basically what happens after death, the intermediate state, and then the resurrection. And the next week, Pastor Corey is going to look at that final judgment. So here is our outline For this afternoon in paragraph one, we're going to look at the intermediate state, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Then in paragraph two, we're going to look at the saints at the last day. Then in paragraph three, we're going to look at the eternal state of our bodies. And so let's pray and ask for God's help as we open up his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come into the name of Christ. Lord, we come recognizing, confessing that we don't think of these things often as we should. Lord, I do pray, as has already been prayed for the lost here this morning, I pray that as they they contemplate the reality of what awaits them, Lord, if they were to die outside of Christ, that it would terrify them. Lord, if they see that, that they would flee to Him, that they would know that today, Lord, could be the day of salvation, if they would just turn from their sin and repent and believe the gospel. Lord, I pray for those of us in Christ that Lord, as we look at the truth of your word, that it would be something that, that builds us up, that edifies us, that gives us encouragement and hope of what's to come. And I pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So paragraph one, 
the intermediate state. The bodies of those who have died return to dust and undergo destruction, but their souls neither die nor sleep because they have an immortal character and immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. There they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory while they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are thrown into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved for the judgment of the great day. The scripture recognizes no place other than these two for souls separated from their bodies. So when we speak of this term, the intermediate state, what are we talking about? We're just talking about that the period of time between someone in this world dies and the beginning of the eternal state, before the return of Christ. And so, you know, if you were to die today, you will remain in the intermediate state until Christ returns. That could be today, that could be in 10,000 years from now. It could be longer than that. And so, when someone dies, they enter into the intermediate state and remain there until the resurrection. Here in this paragraph, we see two distinctions being clearly drawn. First, between the soul and the body, and then secondly, between the righteous and the wicked. The Scriptures make clear that we are what could be called bipartite beings, which just means we consist in two parts. We have a body and we have a soul. When we die, the body begins this transition back to the dust from which it was made. Back to Genesis 3.19. For by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And as James says in James 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead. When you die, spirit and body separated. The body starts this period of decay that for all of us, if the Lord tarries, will return to the dust from which we were formed. The reality is, is that modern morticians can do their best to mask this reality, but, but it's true for each and every one of us that we'll eventually, our bodies will end up just as a pile of dust. But it's not so with our souls. In the words of Solomon the preacher in Ecclesiastes 12.7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So here we have, you know, even in the Old Testament, this, this distinction between body and soul. Where, like, where does one go after it dies versus the other? And so the soul has an immortal character or subsistence. Therefore, the soul doesn't sleep or die. So immortal is one of those words that we probably use, but we may not have thought so much about, okay, exactly what does that mean? And so we need to understand the distinction between eternal and immortal, because they're not the same thing. Eternal is without a beginning and without an end of existence. So who is eternal? God alone, right? And so immortal means never-ending. And so human beings, angels, we're created by God, but we're all immortal. So we have a, a time period where we began, and then we will all live forever after that time. We, we are immortal in that sense. And so in this case, physical death 
doesn't mean an end to our souls. In the, in the words of Ecclesiastes, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So, for the souls of the righteous and the souls of the wicked, this is where the, the, the paths diverge. Confession says, the souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. We have to ask a question. What does the confession mean by the righteous? We're all good Calvinists here, right? We know what Romans says. None is righteous, no, not one. So we know, okay, the testimony of Scripture is unmistakable. Left to ourselves, none of us is righteous. So what does that mean? Does that mean none actually get into heaven? Well, yeah, on our own, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And so none of us can do anything in and of ourselves to, to be reconciled to God and to spend eternity with Him. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes outside of us. So in and of ourselves, none of us is righteous. No, not one. But Christ, Christ is the one who is righteous. We heard it in Isaiah. We, heard, we even sang about those things, that, that Christ lived this life of righteousness for us. That if we will repent, turn from our sins, believe in the gospel, put our trust in His finished work, we will be reconciled to Him. His righteousness imputed to us, our sin imputed to Him, thus reconciled to a thrice holy God. So that's the, that's the heart of the gospel, this imputation of righteousness. And so for the Christian, there's really two alternatives for us. And Paul speaks of these. It's either to remain here on earth and be united with the body, or be separated from the body and be with the Lord. Philippians 1, 21-23. Paul tells the church at Philippi, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that's the, that's the choice for us. That, that's, that's where this, this all goes. The confession speaks then of us being received into paradise, which is just a synonym for heaven. And how do we know that? Well, we see Scripture Use it in that way. And so that, that's where the wording of the confession comes from. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3 say, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So when the confession is using the word paradise, it's just talking about the, the, the souls of the righteous going to heaven. But then... So, so at death, there's this transportation of the soul. And as a part of that, there's also a transformation of the soul that happens. The confession says, the souls of the righteous are made perfect in holiness. So Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
So if we are in Christ, in this life, we are freed from the punishment of sin. In this life, we are freed from the power of sin. But when we die, when we're separated from this body, when we enter the intermediate state, we will also be freed from the presence of sin. Us and all the other believers will be made perfect. So we're going to be perfect, but something's going to be lacking. That, that, started, that, that seems maybe a little bit... Con- okay, it's hard for us to... We're perfect, but we, we're, there's still something um, that we're not complete in that sense. The confession says, We'll be with Christ. We'll behold the face of God in light and glory while we wait for the full redemption of our bodies. So we're going to be perfect in holiness, but we're not going to be perfect in every way. We're going to await the full redemption of our bodies at the resurrection, which we're going to look at in a moment when we get to paragraph 2. Before we turn there, paragraph 1 wraps up in looking at the fate of the wicked, the fate of those outside of Christ in the intermediate state. It says, The souls of the wicked are thrown into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. So if you sit here today, outside of Christ, not repenting, not believing, not trusting in Him, you you have to understand, this is the testimony of Scripture, this is what awaits you when you leave this world. That the souls of the wicked are thrown into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. And that reality is why every Sunday from this pulpit you're going to hear Pastor Corey and I preaching the gospel. Telling you, hey, today is the day of salvation. If you're here, young people, you have to know today is the day of salvation. You have to know that this is what awaits you if you won't bow the knee and turn to Christ. That is the reality of all realities. And that's why Brother Will goes out every week, I mean, hours a week, going out and preaching the gospel to the lost world. I mean, that's why we as a church support him to be able to do that. Because we want people to hear the good news of the gospel and be able to come to Christ for salvation. So in the scriptures, there's two basic terms that describe the place of the wicked after death. We have Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament. So this is going to be, for some of you, you're going to wish that we could spend way more time digging in and fleshing all these things out, but we're just doing it over. For some of you, this is going to make your head hurt even with the summary that I'm going to give. I hope what it does is it spurs you to more study of these things, because as I mentioned, I think that probably for a lot of us, this is something that we haven't really dug into and really fleshed out and understood. And so some people view Sheol as some kind of shadowy underworld where everyone goes after they die. I mean, think of like Greek mythology and those kind of things. That's, that's what, we, uh, what we might think. When we look at the Scriptures, there's even some text that if we just took them in isolation, that may be you know, what we would think. That, hey, this is where everybody goes. For example, Ecclesiastes 6.6, 6, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoyed good, do not all go to the one place? And then in Genesis 37, verse 35, this is after Joseph's brothers have faked his death. It says, all, the, all his, being Jacob's sons and his daughters, rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, Shall I now go down to Sheol with my son? Mourning. Thus his father wept for him. 
So, if you have an understanding of Sheol, Hades, as this, this place in the underworld, you read that, oh, that, that's what makes sense. Everybody goes um, to that particular place. Intertestamental Judaism developed this idea that Sheol contained at least two separate compartments. One for the righteous and one for the wicked. The one for the righteous called paradise, the one for the wicked called Gehenna. I would say the problem with that is, well, the Bible. And so, when we look at Psalm 73, verses 23 and 24, for example, there the psalmist says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me where? To glory. So, the psalmist doesn't say that he's going to die and be received to Sheol, but he says he's going to be received to glory, to heaven. And then, 2 Kings 2.11 And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into where? Into heaven. And then in Luke 16, the story of the rich man Lazarus, says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man was in Hades, not in Gehenna. So right, we, we see these categories created by this intertestamental Judaism don't line up with what we see in the Scriptures. So how then are we to understand those texts? Well, I'm going to give us just an overview. And like I said, I hope this, this, this may not answer every question for you, but it, hopefully it starts to get you thinking about these biblical categories. So we have to understand that the Bible speaks of heaven in different ways, and the Bible speaks of Hades in different ways. So the term heaven, or heavens, it it refers to, generally speaking, that which is above. We see in the text we've already read in 2 Corinthians 12, what does Paul refer to? The third heaven. So what should that lead us to understand? Well, there's at least two more, right, that, that Scripture would refer to, if Paul could refer to the third heaven. So the, the first heaven would be describing the atmosphere or the airy heavens. That would be in a place like Genesis 6-7. The second heaven would be the starry heaven or space. Scripture speaks of that in places like Matthew 24-29. We've already heard the third heaven, which would be God's abode or the heaven of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So, Having that in mind, would it, would it surprise us if Sheol might talk about different things within that one word? I would say no, it wouldn't, and that's what we see in Scripture. So Sheol, just like heavens, refers to things above. Sheol refers to things below. So Sheol is used of the grave, where all mankind goes. And then Sheol is also used to describe the place where the wicked go. For punishment after death. We've already looked at a couple of those texts that describe Sheol as the grave in Ecclesiastes 6 and Genesis 37, where everyone goes. So now let's just look at a couple that clearly refer to Sheol as a place of punishment for the wicked. So Deuteronomy 32.22 For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundation of the mountain. So clearly, there Moses is not talking about just the grave. And in Proverbs 23, 14, If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. 
So clearly that doesn't mean if we actually discipline our children then it's going to somehow save them from the grave, right? It's talking about saving them from the place of punishment for the wicked, that it would be a means that God would use um, to even eventually save them. They would understand you know, the punishment of sin, the truth of the gospel, those kinds of things. So the use of Hades is the Greek equivalent of this word Sheol. And what we see in the New Testament, we've already heard the text of, of Lazarus and the rich man, that it, under, it confirms this understanding. Where, where was the rich man? The rich man wasn't in Gehenna. The rich man was in Hades. And he was calling out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So seeing those two different ways, just like the three ways that Scripture speaks of heaven, seeing the two ways that Scripture speaks of, the, of Sheol or Hades helps us make sense of the biblical data and be able to use the analogy of Scripture to understand these things. So Jim Dome gives, I think, just a great summary sentence of this. He says, Thus the Scripture speaks of the righteous who go to Sheol, the grave, but not to the Sheol of fire or hell. The righteous are also said to go to paradise or heaven, the wicked, on the other hand, go to the Sheol of fire, hell, as well as Sheol, the grave. So, again, that's a short and rudimentary summary of the, scripture, of the teaching of Scripture on those things. If, if you're not wrapping your head around it, I'll, I'll make sure to send out the sermon notes. I forgot to do that this morning. And you can go home and study more on these texts. So, paragraph one ends, The Scripture recognizes no place other than these two, for souls separated from their bodies. So why would the confession have to say that? Well, we've already talked like, multiple times as we've gone through the confession about you know, Roman Catholic errors, you know, serious heresies, one of those being purgatory. Just to summarize quickly for you what, what Catholics believe about purgatory, this is a quote from the handbook for today's Catholic. It says, If you die in the love of God, but possess any stains of sin... So how many Christians continue to sin after they're saved? It would be all of them, right? So if you die in the love of God but possess any stains of sin, such stains are cleansed away in a purifying process called purgatory. These stains of sin are primarily the temporal punishment due to venial or mortal sins already forgiven, but for which sufficient penance was not done during your lifetime. So I hope that what you recognize is how blasphemous that is, how that undermines the sufficiency of Christ's atonement on the cross. Right? It, it, well, he, yeah, he, he paid for your sins, but not all of them, not enough. Right? So you, you need to go do some kind of works, take some kind of punishment to be able to be the icing on the cake for those things. And so it's one of those things that we don't just need to see that as some kind of academic problem. We have to recognize the, the huge blasphemous, horrible nature of that and how damaging it is for the souls of those people that would hold to that. Here's a quote from Calvin that when I read it, it actually sounded more like Luther to me. Um, what he says is, Therefore we must cry out with the shouting not only of our voices but of our throats and lungs that purgatory is a deadly fiction of Satan which nullifies the cross of Christ and inflicts unbearable contempt upon God's mercy and overturns and destroys our faith. So that's how seriously we need to understand this doctrine of purgatory. And you know, we need to be able to talk to our Roman Catholic friends about those types of things to show them you know, how 
I mean, this is why the Roman Catholic can't answer the question, who is the blessed man from Romans, right? Because there is no one whom God doesn't impute his sin in, in their view. Like They deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so it's, an, it's critical that we understand this, especially, you know, we've mentioned this a number of times in the Confession as well. There's this sort of trend, even within the Reformed world, of people you know, swimming the Tiber, going over to Rome. And Pastor Corey and I have tried to make clear that this is not like a, you know, two different flavors of the same ice cream, right, that we're talking about here. You know, this is a different gospel. And you know, the doctrine of purgatory, the doctrine that we looked at a couple of weeks ago of, the, of transubstantiation and the, and the mass, those things just overtly and clearly deny the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. And without that, we, we have no hope. We have, there, there, there is no way of salvation with that sort of view of justification. So I hope that that leaves us with a better understanding of the intermediate state than what we came into today with. But now let's turn to chapter 2 in the fate of the saints at the last day. At the last day, those saints who are found alive will not sleep, but will be changed. All the dead will be raised up with the very same bodies, not different ones, though they will have different qualities. Their bodies will be united again to their souls forever. So again, for those of us that die before Christ returns and we enter the intermediate state, how long will we be there? We'll be there until the last day, until the resurrection. There's only three verses in all of Scripture, interestingly enough, that actually mention the resurrection of the righteous along with the resurrection of the wicked. So that mentioned those two things side by side. I want to look at all three of them to kind of help us to understand the distinction. So Daniel 12.2 And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. As we read these, I want you to think about what are the, what's the t- when you read these, how would you understand the timing of these two resurrections? John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In Acts 24, 14 and 15. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laying down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, that is 100% of the biblical evidence where the resurrection of the just and the unjust are talked about within the same verses. So, when you read those, would you expect the resurrection of the just and the unjust to happen at the same time or at different times? I think we would have to conclude, if we were just to read those, the natural reading would be we're talking about one resurrection that would happen at the same time. Specifically, when we look at John chapter 5, it says, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. To me, that seems the most clear, that we're talking about this same event happening basically simultaneously. So, as we talk about you know, systems of, of eschatology, I think that that rules out any kind of premillennial view that would say there's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the wicked that are separated by a thousand years. 
Like, like these verses, just on their face, would seem to, to contradict such an understanding. Okay, so remember in paragraph one, we saw these, these two distinctions between the soul and the body and then the, between the righteous and the wicked. In these final two paragraphs, we're going to again see two distinctions. The first is going to be the, this, the, the situation with those who are still alive at the last day and those who have died. And then again, we're going to see this contrast between the just and the unjust or the righteous and the wicked. Hear from our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Paul's not talking about sleep there, as much as some people might want to, I think our Jehovah's Witness friends would want to say that. No, sleep is just a euphemism for death. We, we find that pretty consistently in Scripture, and you know, that, that, that it's just seems obvious. But So, what do we see here? That some Christians are going to die. A lot of Christians are going to die. A lot of Christians have died and will continue to die until this last day. But those who are alive at the time of Christ will be instantaneously changed. And I'll confess, I can't at all envision what that will look like. <laughs> like you know, we have some limited testimony of that from Scripture, but I could, that would just be amazing to think about, right? That, hey, we're just here on the earth and all of a sudden we're instantaneously changed and we have glorified bodies and here the resurrection of the dead is coming. But, but this, this is what's happening. This is not... You know, science fiction, these are realities that will occur within history. And so, they will receive glorified bodies and all the dead are going to be raised. And when we get to paragraph 3, in just a moment, it's going to address the eternal state of the bodies of the righteous and the wicked. But here, what we see is the nature of these bodies. It's really paradoxical. What we see is that they're the same... But they're different. So on one hand, they're the same, but on the other hand, they are different. And it's important that we understand both of these things, right? Because there's also kind of a, a move within people within the Reformed world now that, that are denying a future resurrection of the body. You know, the, a full preterism sort of view that, hey, we're in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what it is. And there's not some second, there's, the second coming's already happened. There's not going to be a future resurrection of the body. So we have to. This is important truth to understand to be able to counter um, those heresies. So, what does resurrection mean? It's a, a rising from the dead, right? We, we kind of understand that, and so when we, have this, when we have that discussion, we may forget that definition in mind, but there's no resurrection unless the body that went into the ground comes up out of the ground. Right? That's just inherent in the definition when we use that term resurrection. To, to, to say resurrection and the body's not coming out of the ground that was in the ground, we're, not, we're talking about some different animal and it's not resurrection. Right? We saw this in our Lord's resurrection. What, what was the case with the tomb? It was empty. His body wasn't there. And what we see is our Scripture tells us that our resurrection will actually be like His. Again, we heard this in our Scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. It says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Calvin says this in this text. He says, For we now begin to bear the image of Christ and are every day more and more transformed into it. 
But that image consists in spiritual regeneration. So Calvin's saying it's true for us now. There is a, a real and true sense that we are image bearers of Christ. We've been born again. We've been made new creations with new hearts and new desires. So we're actually being more and more transformed into the image of Christ in this world. But there's more than that. So he continues, But then it will be fully restored both in body and in soul. And what is now begun will be perfected, and accordingly we will obtain in reality what we yet only hope for. So just as Christ's resurrection was not merely spiritual, neither will ours be. Think about the gospel accounts of Christ's resurrection body, right? It could be touched. He ate food in the resurrection body. We're talking about a a, a physical body, that, that same body that went into the ground, coming up out of the ground, but yet different and new. And so it's not a new body substituted for the old. It's the old body made new. So that's a very important distinction to understand. It's not this new body that's created. It's, no, this old one, miraculously, because we're talking about you know, Christians, believers for 6,000 years plus now, right? Many of whom are, have been turned to dust, but God will, will take those particles, bring them back together, and, and make th- this new body. So, we can ask the question that we heard Maybe some of you in your mind are thinking of this Scripture reading. Okay, Pastor, what does Paul mean when he refers to our resurrection body then as a spiritual body? It's a very good question. I'm glad that you asked that. So again, from our Scripture reading, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in perish is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So some people read that, hey, a spiritual body. So Paul is talking about a body composed of spirit, or some kind of ethereal, non-physical body. But to think in that way is to Think in Greek philosophical terms, not in biblical terms. And we talk about this a lot, that when you don't understand something, you keep reading or you read what went before it, and, and that kind of gives you a greater understanding you know, when you come to a problem in the text. In this case, it's not right before it, but all we have to do is go earlier in the same book. In Amazingly, we actually see Paul use these same words, spiritual and natural, in another case, where we can get, okay, let's get some further understanding of what Paul is talking about. Because when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, okay, that starts to be a little, okay, what are you meaning there, Paul? And we go back to 1 Corinthians 2, and it's a situation that we can much more easily wrap our minds around and understand. So 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So who is the spiritual person that Paul's talking about there? If you're in Christ, it's, it's every one of you. It, it, it's you that have been born again. You that have been regenerated by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. And so, think... Anthony Hokema does a really great job in summarizing this. So 
In this quote, he's going to be talking about how the fact in 1 Corinthians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 15, we have these exact two words used in contrast to one another. So he says, here are the same true Greek words are used as in, 14, or as in 15.44. But spiritual here does not mean non-physical. Obviously, we, we're st- we are still physical, but yet we are spiritual people. It says, rather it means someone who is guided by the Holy Spirit, at least in principle, in distinction from someone who is guided only by his natural impulses. In similar fashion, the natural body described in 1544 is one which is, in part, of, which is part of this present sin-cursed existence. But the spiritual body of the resurrection is one which will be totally, not just partially, dominated and directed by the Holy Spirit. So when you look at those two texts com- together, that seems to be the obvious conclusion from that. We don't have to look at 1 Corinthians 15 and go off on some kind of wild things of what a spiritual body, like what does Paul mean when, he, when he's using that terminology. So again, what will that look like? I can't tell you beyond this. This is one of those areas where hey, there, there's a certain curiosity that we have. We, we would like to be able to you know, get a glimpse into, I, I can't even comprehend that, right? And that's the, that's the truth is that before, this side of glory, even if someone were to be able to come and try to explain to us those realities, we wouldn't be able to grasp it. But, but you know, we just have these little snippets, these little you know, glimpses into what that's going to be like. And you know, that, that is a, a, a true and actual reality that, that this, this body that we have that went into the ground will be raised up. It will be you know, fully indwelled and controlled by the Spirit. And we will live forever with God in eternity in the new heavens and new earth. But... We don't have, it's not like we can go watch this movie or read this novel or whatever that's going to accurately describe what that looks like because God just chose you know, not to, to, to reveal that to us um, in this life. This paragraph ends with, with a great hope related to this for those in Christ. It says, Their bodies will be united again to their souls forever. So, what we're talking about here, the, the, you know, this resurrection, this joining of soul again with resurrection body, that will be how we live in eternity. This, this is not something that, that can be changed. And so the, the consistent testimony of Scripture that this change is final and permanent. It's everlasting. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, once the resurrection happens and we get to the judgment that Pastor Corey is going to preach on next week, we're going to enter the eternal state and there's no changing from there. That, that's when, you know, as we talked about, our souls in the intermediate state are perfect yet, but they're lacking. You know, there's this, reuni- you know, this reuniting that needs to happen. So let's wrap up and look at paragraph 3 in the eternal state of our bodies. Confession says, The bodies of the unjust will be raised by the power of Christ to dishonor. By His Spirit, the bodies of the just will be raised to honor and will be made like Christ's own glorious body. So as we've seen, both the just and the unjust, the saved and the lost, will be raised. That's something that we have in common. For the unjust, though, this resurrection is really paradoxical when you think about it. We're going to have the unjust that Similar to us, we'll have a resurrection body, but what is eternity like for them? It's eternal wrath, eternal punishment, right? So, in a sense, we have this resurrection of the unjust 
It's really a resurrection unto death. That's, that's the eternal reality for those outside of Christ. Think about in Daniel 12 and John 5 what that resurrection of the unjust was described as. It was, in Daniel 12, a resurrection of shame and everlasting contempt. And then John 5.29, it was a resurrection of judgment. So again, if you sit here today outside of Christ, that reality should utterly terrify you. Sam Waldron put it this way. He said, Unconverted friends should never think that death is a way to escape divine wrath. Even death is no refuge from God. Even there, the mighty arm of divine wrath can draw them and make them stand before His awful throne on the last day. Though they blow themselves to bits, God will reassemble them so that they will face His great white throne. So I hope today that if you hear that, that you feel the weight of that upon you. But I hope you wouldn't stay there. I hope that that would lead you to look to Christ, to look at the salvation that's available in Him, and that you would flee to Him today and that you would be saved, that you would not go down that path of everlasting wrath and torment of a holy God. I hope that every one of you within the hearing of my voice, as I look at you, that that would not be... The, the eternal state for you, that you're hearing these truths. If, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard them over and over again. And what Scripture says is that it's actually heaping more judgment upon you that you continue to hear those truths, yet you deny them. And so let, let the weight of this fully sit upon your conscience and flee to Christ today. The confession then turns to the bodies of the just. Interestingly, where the bodies of the unjust are said to be raised by the power of Christ, the bodies of the just are said to be raised by the Spirit. Let's look at Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Again, we've already seen that our resurrection body will be like Christ. We've already seen that our resurrection bodies will be spiritual. They'll be fully dominated and directed by the Spirit. So it only seems natural then that the Spirit would be the means, the agent of our resurrection. So just as the Bible's teaching on the resurrection should strike dread and fear into the hearts of the unconverted For those of us in Christ, it should fill us with a great joy and with a great hope. Saints, we can have comfort, we can have encouragement, even when facing physical death. Even facing the most horrible martyr's death. Even facing the most arduous cancer or whatever diagnosis that we would get. We can face any of those things with joy, with encouragement knowing that Christ has won the victory over death, over sin. That's why Scripture can say, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? So for those of us in Christ, we can look forward to closing our eyes in this life and waking up face-to-face with Christ. So let me pray, and then Pastor Corey is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father, I do come to you in the name of Christ.
I come asking for anyone sitting here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't been reconciled to you through the blood of Christ, or that your spirit would come and work effectually with the preaching of your word, grant newness of life, or bring hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind. Grant them newness of life, Lord. For those of us in Christ, we know some of us sooner than others that that day of death will approach. But as we face it, as we have loved ones around us face it, Lord, help us to be able to have this great joy, this great encouragement that we see from Your Word of what awaits us, Lord. Not just in the intermediate state, but for all eternity with Christ reigning and ruling. Father, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.